Well, good morning. And we continue in our worship this morning here to hear God speak to us through his word. We have his word all throughout our whole service as the service revolves around God. Uh, but now we're, we're going to take some time to listen to his word specifically read here. And we're going to hear the, the message that God has for us from his word. This is the, the words of Jesus here. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 12. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if you don't, the, the text will be in your worship guide also. Uh, but before we turn to reading God's word, let's first pray and ask for uh, the Spirit to open up its meaning to us, to open up our hearts to receive it well this morning too. Lord God, we come this morning because we need to hear your word. Whether or not we want to or not, we need to. And so incline our hearts and our desires to hearing what you have to say. Open our ears, open our understandings. We pray that any barriers in here that might be in our own hearts, any barriers that that are distracting us from, from everyday life, that Lord, we would just be able to focus upon what you have to say to us here. We pray that not just simply words about Jesus and a story about Jesus would be spoken, but that more importantly, the person and work of Jesus himself would be proclaimed here and that your spirit would open us to receive it gladly. In Jesus' name, amen. And this is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the very word of God himself. And when he, being Jesus, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. We are in a brief series right now called Redeemed, Restored, Forgiven, which is centering among some of the encounters that Jesus has with, with, with people where he is um, revealing himself through miracles. He's revealing the nature of his restoration. And these, we have to remember that in these, all of these events here, these are real people in real history 
who had real interactions with Jesus and who experienced real healing, real restoration. But sometimes though, as we'll see in this passage with the paralytic, Jesus' healing and his restoration comes in ways that aren't always expected, either by the onlookers who are witnessing everything or by the recipient also. He isn't only content with physical restoration, but he's looking for the restoration of the whole person, the whole person, body and soul. It's not that he doesn't care about physical healing or the healing of, of mental diseases or of emotional restoration when we've been wounded, but to make the whole person new. If we don't look at our whole selves and the depth of our needs, or if we miss the robust work of Jesus for us, then it's easy to subtly believe that if I'm healed of whatever it is that I'm experiencing, then I'll be okay. That the only thing that I need is healing. And if Jesus, though, promises that he comes to make all things new, the, I mean, that's, these encounters that we're, that we're looking at here demonstrate that clearly. And he comes to make people just like you and me new in our whole selves. We cannot be content with only being physically restored, but also being restored back to God. Our needs go deeper than what we see, than just simply what we feel or what we think. And the good news is that Jesus knows our deepest needs and he came to restore us in both soul and in body. But that doesn't always happen in the ways that we expect in the moment. Jesus has a way of showing us what it is that we really need. And we see that in the story of Jesus healing a paralyzed man. And his interactions with three groups, as we'll see here, highlight three aspects of true restoration. And the first interaction we have here is Jesus with the paralytic and his four friends. And we see here that restoration is brought about through faith. Restoration is brought about through faith. We don't know much about these, these men other than that one of them is paralyzed and he has four friends, four dear friends who desperately want to help him. But the emphasis here is put upon the faith that they have that brings them to Jesus. And we see a few things in particular about their faith. One thing is that it's, a des it's desperate. It's a desperate faith. There's a sense of desperation that they must get to Jesus. Word has gotten out that Jesus has arrived in town and these men love their friend and they want to help their friend because they know that on his own, he has no hope. There's no chance that this man is just going to get better on his own. Humanly speaking, his life is destined then to be relegated upon his mattress and cared for by his loved ones. But when his friends hear about Jesus, they know that if they can only get him to them, if only they, they can get to Jesus, there is hope. And I imagine that it wasn't probably too hard to find out where Jesus was in town because the home is packed to the gills. It's standing room only. There are so many people there that there's no way that these men can even get through the door, let alone get to Jesus. But the thing is, and they know this, they must get to him. And they'll stop at nothing. Why? Because they know that this is the only hope for their friend. And they're desperate. The paralytic is desperate to get to Jesus and to be near him. So their faith isn't only a desperate faith, it's also a determined faith. 
as, because that's the way it often goes. Desperation leads to determination. And you can imagine them outside. Well, what do we do? We can't get in here. I don't know. Do we turn around and go home? No, no, no. I know. Get me an ax and get me some rope. And they go up and climb up onto the top of the roof, which in this time actually wasn't as difficult as you might think it was because people like to spend time on the roofs. It sounds strange, right? But people like to spend time in, the, in their, their roofs, the, the, the cool of the evening. And there was probably stairs that would lead uh, uh, from the outside going up to, to the top of the roof. Now, that's not, not denigrating anything here. It's just simply just saying like, you know, are they getting out the ladders? Are they getting out the pulley? No, it's, it's, it's not as big of a deal there. But the crazy part is, the big deal here is, is that they start to open a hole up in the top of the roof. This isn't even their house if you think about it, right? They knew though that this man needed Jesus and they start hacking away at the top of this roof of, a, of, a, of someone that they don't even know to get him in there. And we see that this is really a drastic faith then too. It's desperate, it's determined, and it's drastic. They wanted so badly to be near Jesus, they were willing to do something as wild and risky as this. Think of all that could have gone wrong here. Again, like we said, first of all, this wasn't even their house. Now imagine if you were inside there listening to Jesus, and then this whole moment is disturbed by this banging on the ceiling, the plaster starts to fall down, and then a hole starts to open up. I'm sure the owner's yelling at them, telling them, you're, you're responsible for the damage. What are you doing to my home? But honestly, you have to wonder, what were the people thinking there as they're sitting also? Or what if Jesus decided this wasn't a very good time? They just caused a ruckus during his sermon. Maybe he wouldn't be too happy about that. After all, this is preaching time. This isn't healing time but they were willing to go to such extreme lengths because they knew that their friend needed Jesus. It's a faith that's determined, desperate, drastic. Kind of, what does that kind of faith look like for people like you and me right now? It's a faith that understands our own desperation and that there's no hope for us on our own. We need Jesus. We need all of who he is. We need him for our life for our holiness, for our cleansing, to live restored lives, for hope in our brokenness. It's a faith that grasps out for him because we have nothing else to hold on to. It's a faith that reaches out in the darkness and prays that he will take hold of our hand. It's a drastic faith that's willing to do whatever it takes to be near him, even if it means turning its back on the rest of the world because it has counted the cost and analyze the risks and sees that having Jesus is better than having anything else. But there's one more thing to note. It's also a faith that doesn't disappoint. Note in verse five, it says that Jesus sees their faith, the faith of them all there. And he looks at the paralytic and he tells them, son, your sins are forgiven. There's an acceptance and a welcome there. It's easy to miss, but again, note how Jesus addresses him. Son, there's a sense of welcome and of pleasure there. He approves of this man and he speaks these beautiful words of pardon. And none of this came to the paralytic because of anything that he did. It didn't really actually even come because of anything that his friends did. 
What was it that motivated them in the very first place to do such a drastic thing? What was it? It was their faith that they would do anything to get as close to Jesus as they could because they knew who he was. Restoration comes through Jesus, but coming to Jesus requires faith. And it's only when we feel our sense of desperation that we will come to him. And Jesus doesn't turn people away, not when they come clinging to him. You see that over and over in the gospels. It's those people who have nothing and come in faith then that leave filled. The only people who are turned away, the only people who are disappointed are those people who try to appeal to something else. What is it that you're looking for in Jesus? Sometimes disappointment comes when we're offered something quite different than what we've anticipated or than what we've asked for. Jesus restores, but what does that look like? Well, we're also going to look at the Jesus and the paralytic here. This is the second one. We're going to look at Jesus encountering the paralytic himself, and we see here that restoration shows and heals our deepest needs. Restoration shows us and heals our deepest needs. Jesus restores this man, but he does so in a very unexpected way. He sees the deeper need that the paralytic had, one that went much further than his own physical inabilities. A good doctor isn't content to only treat your symptoms. They want to diagnose and take care of the underlying condition that manifests itself in those symptoms. Jesus, as the great physician, as he calls himself later, Jesus diagnoses this paralytic's deeper problem and heals him from it. The fundamental problem that needs restoring wasn't the paralytic's disability. It was his broken relationship with God due to his sin. That's what we see in in verse 5 again. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, is this what the paralytic expected would happen? His response isn't given, so I really don't know if this is what he was expecting. But Jesus knew this man. He knew him inside and out. He didn't only look at him as a paralyzed man in desperate need of healing. He saw him as a broken man in desperate need of restoration, even down to his very soul to be brought back into fellowship with God and to be forgiven of all of his sins. See, Jesus doesn't just look at the, at the body and all that comes with it, well, the, the physical, the mental, the emotional, but he looks down also at the soul. He looks at the whole person from his angle, a whole person in need of whole restoration. He, needs our, he knows our needs better than we do. Which is why he didn't only come to heal the physically broken, but why he also then went to the cross to take the sins of his people upon himself so that they would would then be brought into the welcoming arms of his heavenly father. See, ultimately, the root cause of this man's condition was sin. But I want you to listen to this carefully. This man wasn't paralyzed because of his own sins or anything he did. His paralysis was a symptom of the presence of sin in this world. When Jesus declared that his sins were forgiven, he wasn't implying that his suffering was due to some particular sin that that man had committed or that there was a direct correlation between his sin and his disability. That's not what Jesus is teaching. There's an instance later in the Gospels in in John where Jesus 
and his disciples encounter a man born blind. And his disciples ask, who sinned for this man to be born blind? Was it, was it him or was it his parents? Jesus says, neither. And there's another moment then in, in Luke where they're reflecting upon a tragic event, a tower having collapsed and fallen on some people and killed a number of people. And Jesus asked, do you think that they were worse sinners because they died? Well, then maybe that you should ask yourself why it didn't fall on yourself if that's the case. Now, to be sure, there are instances of suffering and of conditions that are brought on as consequences from sin or habits. Don't be surprised if you get liver disease after spending your life in alcoholism. Or being in an accident and crippled may be a consequence of drunk driving. But what about those instances where the individual is passive? What about the teenage girl who gets T-boned by that same drunk driver at a stop sign and tragically spends the rest of her life in a wheelchair? Or when cancer strikes someone who ought to be in the prime of their life? What are we to make of congenital defects, of the onset of schizophrenia, or of autoimmune disorders? Are those people to examine themselves for a particular sin that they've committed? wondering if they can get to the root? No. They're symptoms of the deeper condition of brokenness and sin which infects the world. There's not necessarily a direct line of causation for our own personal sins when these arise, but they are, though, connected to sin in a general sense. They're products of the shroud which has fallen upon the world so that we experience it in ways that just wasn't intended when God created all things good. All of this reminds us that being made whole is more than just physical healing. Wholeness can only come through a robust restoration with God to heal not only the symptoms of sin, but sin and its destructive effects on the world and upon individuals. When Jesus declares to the paralytic that his sins are forgiven, he is taking the first steps to effect restoration in him. He is loosening the bonds of sin and tearing off from him that which estranged him from God so that he might be restored back into a relationship with him. It's the compassion and love of Jesus that doesn't just heal him and then send him on his way. He knows his deeper need and he restores him into the loving embrace of God the Father. This is done on the cross. Jesus took all the sins of his people and, it, and where it was put to death as, as it was put upon himself. He was killing the deepest disease that infected them and infects you and I. I had the privilege of studying for a semester in Israel way back in college. And one day, wandering the, the streets of Jerusalem, I visited the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion. And amazingly and conveniently enough, the tomb is only placed a matter of yards away from it. Now, whether or not that's actually the place here or not, that, that doesn't matter. But what does matter to this story, though, is that located there is a rock which was supposedly underneath the cross of Jesus when he was crucified and which the blood of Jesus ran down upon. And you go there and you visit it and you look at that supposed stone there. And at the stone on the, on the floor there, there's a crowd of people with pictures of their loved ones and they're rubbing it on the stone, hoping and praying then that they would be healed. 
where they take handkerchiefs or other objects and they rub them upon the rock, hoping that somehow that object, that handkerchief might be imbued with some sort of mystical power, some sort of spiritual power that they can take home and bring some sort of miracle back to a loved one. Now, there are many things there that are tragic and sad about the whole scene. Mysticism there, this treating Jesus as some sort of magical icon. But this one, though, I think was the most tragic. Masses of people who are misdiagnosing the problem and missing the cure that's right in front of them. Masses of people caught up with the idea that they needed a miracle, so much so that they missed what was really needed and it was allegedly poured out upon that stone that they're coming to, which is the blood of Jesus to atone for sins and to reconcile them and restore them to God. Now let's think about that for ourselves. Have I subtly bought into thinking that if I can only be healed physically or of a mental disorder or from emotional trauma, that I'll be okay? That if if only I'll be healed of that, things will be all right. And focusing on that rather than the restoration that comes through the cross. The restoration of the cross that brings me near to God where he promises to be a perfect comforter to me, where he promises to restore me body and soul, life everlasting. It's noteworthy to recognize that Jesus separates forgiveness from physical healing here, but that later he will bring them together. His words are separate, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is disinterested in the physical condition of his people. Because if the cross is restoration for a reconciled relationship, then the resurrection of Jesus, where he comes back to life, emerges triumphant from the grave, that is restoration for healing. Jesus crucified dealt with sin, but Jesus resurrected deals with our bodies. Because as he would come out of the tomb, it was a sign that for the first time in millennia, sin and its effects upon the world were defeated. That Jesus was literal living proof. The Bible refers to him as the first fruits of the new creation. Because Jesus lives wholly restored, because he lives body and soul, then so will all of those then who are with him. That there is a new creation hope that is laid up and is sure for people who come to him in faith. That same sort of desperate faith that those four men in the paralytic had as they tore apart the roof to get their friend in. Now to certain ears, it might sound uncaring that Jesus didn't initially heal this paralytic from his condition. But we need to understand something. What Jesus was promising him was so much more than just a regained ability. It was this new creation, this this resurrection, this restoration hope a future that can only exist that is free from the spoiling presence of sin. So what's the significance then of him declaring his sins to be forgiven? What's Jesus' words of welcome into that kingdom? You are forgiven and free, my son. You are reconciled. You belong to me now. And I have so much joy and beauty that's awaiting you in the life to come. Just wait. And for the first time, then that paralytic had real hope. His fate of remaining on his mattress for the rest of his life was suddenly upended because he was now forgiven, because he was part of a kingdom that would restore him in the fullest way possible, body and soul, 
See, Jesus was never once disinterested in his condition or his suffering. And nor is Jesus ever disinterested in the condition or the suffering of his people. Insisting on our healing now is to jump the gun on the immortality and the eternal restoration that is in store. Jesus cares about suffering and sickness and healing. That's why he came. But perhaps healing, healing right now, perhaps that's not the goal. Perhaps the goal is something greater because it's, there's something more enduring than a simple physical healing in this passing age. Perhaps he's using those afflictions as we ex- that we experience as a means then to draw us closer to himself and to change us more into his image. Because that's what we see with this paralytic. If he hadn't been paralyzed and severely afflicted, he may not have ever come to Jesus with a real sense of desperate need and faith. See, the, the church is full of stories, some told, but countless untold, of people where God used affliction in their lives and to bring them closer to his heart and then who he then used as gifts then to his church to show us what it looks like to teach us. People like William Cooper and Martin Luther who dealt severely with depression and mental disorder and who were never really healed from it, yet apart from that would never have grown as deeply into experiencing the care of Jesus for them and who continue then, who their words, their writings, their hymns still have deep bearing upon us and teach us also what that means. Or people like Johnny Erickson Tata, who was herself paralyzed at a young age and had to reckon with her disability then to find joy in Christ. And who now still continues to encourage and teach others, people like you and me, to do the same. So no matter if God brings someone physical healing or not, through whatever means that he ordains, that's not the whole story. If someone is healed, that's beautiful. Praise God. And if they aren't, if he doesn't heal, we, can, we mourn, we continue to pray. But none of that is a sign of God's love or his displeasure. But no matter what, that's not the whole story. If someone's healed, then it's inevitably going to be something else that will take them to the grave. Because true restoration isn't in just getting physically better, but it's in being clothed in the glory of Christ eternally someday. There's one other group of people, though, that we need to look at here that Jesus encounters. And that's the scribes. So we see here from the scribes as Jesus talks with them that restoration confronts us with who Jesus is. Restoration confronts us with who Jesus is. Because all this time, there's a group of scribes there, scribes being leaders who are trained in the, specifically trained in the religious laws. These scribes are sitting and watching all of these events. And they prove really to be the opposite, the antithesis of the paralytic and his friends. The The paralytic and his friends can't get into the house while the scribes are holding court with Jesus. The friends are coming seeking Jesus out of desperation and faith while the scribes sit and grumble to themselves about who Jesus claims to be. And as Jesus pronounces forgiveness upon the paralytic, then they begin to get upset because these men trained in the Old Testament know that only God can forgive sins. And they're half right. It is only God who can forgive sins. No sin is committed in a vacuum. Every sin is ultimately an affront against God. 
And if sin has such a defiling effect upon the world, then only the sovereign Lord has any power to do anything about it. See, they're not entirely wrong. They get what this implies about Jesus' statement. They understand that he's stepping in to do something that only God has a right and an ability to. But though they're, they're half right, it also leaves them so, so wrong. And the part that they're wrong about goes far beyond what they get right because they bring a faulty assumption about God. They rightly affirm that God is, is holy and he's so other and he's distinct from his creation. They get that part right. But what they get wrong, though, is assuming that because of that, he can't possibly come down and reach out into fallen humanity in this sort of way. And if God can't come down and condescend in such a way, then this man can't be from God. He can't be God, excuse me. Verse 7, that's what they say there. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. The most tragic part, though, of all with these scribes is that they knew the Old Testament so well, but they really actually didn't understand God or his ways all along. If so, they would have recognized that every gracious act of God's mercy is itself a condescension. Every promise of deliverance that he has made good, every instance of his presence coming down to dwell with his people, every provision that he made for atonement, all of this revealed that God is not content to, to remain far off from their people and from their needs, but rather he desires to come down and restore them back to himself. Instead, though, these scribes were so concerned about overly protecting God's otherness that they missed the profound meaning of what was happening before them under their very eyes. And they left them in unbelief. And they missed all of the joy and gladness of that moment there. It's too easy for us to take a similar view of Jesus. Maybe not accusing him of blasphemy like this here, like these scribes. But do we also doubt sometimes that he is able to do what he says? We look at ourselves in our sinfulness, in our physical and our spiritually broken conditions. And we might look at ourselves and just realize, oh, what a mess I really am. And then we receive these words of Jesus when he says, your sins are forgiven. Where we hear the promise of restoration that's already laid up to, rest, to restore us, both body and soul. Maybe you thought, yeah, but God doesn't do that. Not the people like me. Maybe he does that for others. But me? How could he, knowing what I know about myself? Friend, he already knows everything about that you know about yourself, and he knows more about you and in deeper ways than you do. Even for seasoned believers, it's so easy to convince ourselves from what we ought to know and what we've grown up knowing. There's no need to search for excuses on what God can do. Instead, listen to the words that he has for you. Hear what he says, what he can do, and what he will do. And to drive home the point and to show who he really is, Jesus then heals the paralytic. The scribes want proof. Telling the paralytic that he's forgiven is something only God can do. But talk is easy. Telling the paralytic to get up and walk, though, that's something else. And so Jesus gives them the proof they want by healing this man. He shows his divine authority to forgive this man's sin by doing something tangible that only God can do. But there's something that's easy to miss in verse 10. 
Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And that's a title that alludes to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel is given a vision of God Almighty, the ancient of days, as it says, ruling from on high. And then it says that there is one like a son of man who comes down from heaven and and shares authority with God himself. And this son of man is also given an eternal kingdom by God, full of glory in which he will reign forever. And in so many words, Jesus tells the scribes here that he is that son of man. He rules over his kingdom. He has the authority to forgive sins and he alone presides over the door to allow people to come in. The note in verse 11, he turns from speaking to the scribes for them to know his authority and then he addresses the paralytic. And this is where the son of man heals him. He shows the scribes his authority that he will let in who he will into his kingdom, a kingdom of restoration. And then he shows his para- this paralytic, his compassionate and merciful restoration as he says, son, your sins are forgiven and you are brought into my kingdom. And this is what his kingdom's like. It's glory and body, it's forgiveness and soul. We all need to be confronted in the most loving way possible again and again about who Jesus is. Some of us will look for reasons on why we are the exception when it comes to forgiveness. Or we'll feel, or we'll, we'll struggle feeling it in certain moments. Some will have trouble holding on to the hope of resurrection in the face of sickness. Some will walk alongside others as they suffer and wonder how God could possibly bring redemption from such a situation. In all of these scenarios, in countless other scenarios that undoubtedly some of you walk in. We are the ones insisting what Jesus is like rather than being still for a moment and listening again to who he says he is. Jesus is the authority. It's his kingdom. It's his forgiveness that he grants because he's the one who willingly had himself nailed to the cross and took the full wrath of God for every sin of his people. He knows the resurrection life and glory and restoration better than any of us do right now because he's living it. Let's allow Jesus to speak to us because he's the authority on these matters. He's the great physician who not only knows the right diagnosis, but he knows the cure. He has one, he's the one who has promised to heal us as whole people. And so the question is then, how will I respond? The response that he's looking for and the response that he welcomes is that of desperate faith in his words and in his work alone. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so kind to us. We don't deserve any of this from what we have just read, but you are so kind. Thank you for taking interest upon us as we were lost in our sins, as we lay in our brokenness. We ask then for a better understanding of what the restoration is that you have for us. The restoration that we can experience now, the restoration though that is also ours to come. We know that. Would you impress that upon our our hearts and would you affect that more and more in us? Would you use our states to draw us closer to you? so that we might live more and more in the ways that you have for us and in light of the, of the restoration that we have for eternity. 
until that day, bolster our faith. Show us, strengthen us in our times of weakness. May we stop at nothing to come to you. May we take drastic steps even. May you show us that our greatest need is you. And so strengthen our belief as as it is needed. And thank you for the promise that you have given to us here in the Lord's Supper as we come to the table and as we feast from you. Remind us of those promises and confirm them again in our hearts. Amen.